0: In Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 13, there's a principle that I'd like to read describing God uh, and also teaching us about how we're to interact with one another. And after we read this scripture, we'll then turn to see how Jesus actually demonstrated this principle in his life. Colossians 3, beginning in verse 13, it says this, Bear with each other... And forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. There was another translation, the New Living Translation says, Be gentle and ready to forgive, never hold grudges. So that's a principle that as Christians we're to follow and try to live in our lives every day. But now let's turn to uh, John chapter 20 and we're going to see exactly how Jesus demonstrated this principle for us. And this teaching about being ready to forgive, be gentle with all people, never hold grudges. Last week we talked about the resurrection from the dead, Jesus rising from the dead early on Sunday morning and uh, we kind of dropped it off there, celebrating that and rejoicing in that, but now we're kind of continuing on with Jesus' experience after the resurrection. Now we know that he appeared to a few on that morning and he was on earth for another 40 days before he eventually ascended up into heaven. But uh, we see here, when he once again comes in contact with the disciples and the apostles, we see the attitude that he has and how he really exemplified this scripture that we just read. Now, when Jesus first came in contact with the apostles and the disciples, keep in mind that as Jesus was going through his passion and his death, All of the apostles, not just Peter, but all of the apostles had actually forsaken him. When he was taken prisoner and when he was being interrogated and all these sorts of things were happening to him, scripture says that they all left him and fled. So Jesus was on his own as he went through his passion, when he went through his crucifixion, and now that he rose from the dead, here he is coming in contact with these people again. All of his disciples his apostles those who fled from him kind of forsake him at forsook him at that time you would think that that would have been an awkward situation now look at looking at it through human eyes and considering how human nature would approach that it would be very awkward because after all these are the people that weren't there when you needed them the most and You know, thinking how you would have reacted to that, you know, it would have been more of a confrontation, perhaps. But not so with Jesus. Now that he was raised, what would he say to those who actually abandoned him? Well, we read here in John 20, verse 17, as he encounters these people one by one. John 20 and verse 17. The first person that he experiences... When he rose from the dead is Mary, verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned toward him and cried out in the Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am returning to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Well, that's an encouraging thing for him to say. You know, instead of saying, okay, where are all those losers who deserted me in my time of need? I want to get a hold of them. He doesn't say that. He says words of encouragement. He says, go ahead to my brothers. Well, that's good news because he still considers them, those that forsook him and deserted him in his time of need, he still considers them to be his brothers. He says, tell them I'm returning to my father and your father. That's good news, too, because in spite of what had happened, how they had deserted him, he still says that he's going to his father, who is also your father's. So you haven't lost your standing with God being your father. He says, unto my God and your God. Wow, that's encouraging. In spite of how you forsook me, I still consider you to be brothers. My father is still your father. My God is still your God. Let's read a little further at verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, after he had risen from the dead, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. So obviously, he came through the door or through the wall. Why? Because he's glorified now he has changed it used to be that he would have to knock on the door or walk through the door but now a locked door can't stop him Jesus came and stood among them and said peace so Jesus doesn't come in and say you dirty rats who forsook me wait till I get my hands on you I'm just being facetious he says peace don't worry don't be alarmed Don't be uh, upset, I come in peace. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So not only does he still consider them to be his brothers, that his father is still their father, but the commission that he has for them, the sending is still in place. He still expects them to continue with him, even though he's gonna depart in 40 days, he's going to ascend up to heaven. Jesus is going to be with them through the Holy Spirit to finish the commission, the great commission of preaching the gospel to the world. So these are words of encouragement. He's saying, peace, not shame on you, Peace be with you. I forgive you. I take you back. I entrust you with my mission. Here, receive the Holy Spirit who's going to help you. So you can imagine if if you did this to to a person today, uh, just a regular person, and you somehow forsook them or offended them or hurt them, you know, to come, come in contact with them again, to bump into them, it would be kind of awkward and you'd be worried, man, What am I going to say to this person? I I need to apologize. You know, what words are going to to soothe the, the division now between me and that person? Well, not so with Jesus. Jesus is quick to forgive. And in fact, that's the title of the sermon today. God is quick to forgive. As Jesus is demonstrating here. And the story goes on a little bit later. In chapter 21, afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the son of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going to go out to fish, Simon Peter told them. So they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends. Haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, Throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. So, skipping down to verse 10, Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have just caught. Jesus is cooking breakfast for them. Verse 15, When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Don't forget now, he's the one who didn't just flee from Jesus, he was the one who denied Jesus. When Jesus had been taken prisoner, someone come up, came up to Peter and said, hey, you're one of the group, you were with this Jesus. And Peter said, no, I wasn't. And a second time it happened, and Peter said, it wasn't me, you're thinking of some other person. And a third time it happened, So it would have been especially awkward awkward with Peter coming into contact with Jesus again, because he knew that he had denied Jesus, and Jesus knew it too. So notice what Jesus does to Peter. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. So Peter was going to perform a tremendous service in the church and a tremendous ministry. He was going to be the one in charge overall of taking the gospel, not only to the Jews, don't forget on the day of Pentecost, the powerful sermon that he preached, but he was also going to be responsible of taking the gospel to the Samaritans. Don't forget, he was the one who had the dream to go visit Cornelius, this Samaritan man, And who's going to be the first one to hear the gospel and respond to it? So verse 16, and again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. Third time, he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. So notice how tactfully, how gently, Jesus restores Peter to a relationship with him. Now, Jesus didn't say, okay, Peter, you denied me three times. I want an apology from you. Or, you know, you better say it in the right way, too, and you better really mean it. You better show me that you're truly sorry for it. He didn't say any of that. All he did was ask Peter, do you love me? And understand that that's the same approach that Jesus takes with us when we sin, when we cut ourselves off from him, when we flee from him, which we do sometimes uh, from from time to time in our lives, especially as a, a new Christian. Jesus is very gentle in restoring us. He doesn't demand an explanation. He doesn't demand an apology. He doesn't demand, you know, just the right words to be said so we can be taken back into His good graces. Now, you know, I've shared with you many times that I was raised in my younger years as a Catholic. Some of you were as well. And the process of being forgiven in the Catholic Church is to go to the confessional and to confess your your sins to the priest. And once you did that, which is terribly awkward and uncomfortable, the priest would give you a penance to do. So many prayers to say and and, and whatever else. And um, my friends and I would kind of had contests going on to see who got the most penance to do because that meant your sins were the worst. And we would compare notes and how many prayers we had to say. And, but you know, Jesus didn't even require penance or uh, prayers to be said. He just approached Peter and in a gentle way restored him by asking him, Peter, do you love me? And when re- Peter responded in the positive Jesus restored him. Jesus was eager to repair the damage that had been done. He was eager to forgive. He was eager to restore. He was eager to recommission Peter. Sometimes when we forsake God by our sins or whatever it is that we do, stop going to church for a while or kind of fall out of relationship with him, if you ever forsake him, or let him down, or offend him, take heart. He is just as eager to repair things with you as he was with Peter and the rest of the apostles. That's the kind of God that we worship. God is not the strict God up in heaven waiting for us to slip up so he can curse us somehow or make things go bad for us. He wants you to seek him out, to ask him, and to receive his grace. And that's the lesson that we're taught in Colossians. And there we see a perfect example of Jesus doing just that, being very gentle and restorative to the apostles and to the rest of the disciples. Turn with me to Psalm 103. Psalm 103, beginning in verse 8. One of our favorite Psalms because it teaches us about God, the way God truly is, and God never changes. So we can have hope in this and faith and confidence in this. David here writes in Psalm 103, verse 8, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. So we know that He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him, and his righteousness with their children's children. Those are very encouraging words, because how often do we kind of fall out of sorts with God? We're still fighting human nature, and we slip up from time to time. Uh, Sometimes our slip up may go on for a period of time, and we find ourselves kind of wandering away from God. But God is always there. God is always quick to forgive. He loves us that much. In Luke chapter 15, we read a tremendous parable by Jesus Christ that once again explains just how quick God is to forgive. Luke chapter 15 beginning in verse 11, we read the parable of the prodigal son or the lost son. Jesus says here, there was a man who had two sons The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. So the younger son is kind of rambunctious and uh, he wants to go out and sow his wild oats, as they say. So before the time of his father's death, he asks for his inheritance in advance. Not long after that, verse 13, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his field to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. So here he is in the pits of life, okay? He uh, made bad decisions, he lost all that he had, and uh, he starts thinking about how wonderful it used to be by comparison when he still lived with his father. It says in verse 17, when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, so here he's going to plan out his apology and his repentance, if you will, to his father. This is what I'm going to say. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. So that's us. Okay. When we sin, we kind of stray from God, we kind of forsake God at a certain period of our life, and we start thinking about getting back into God's good graces. And we think about what we might say to him or how we're going to explain our sinfulness or some sort of an excuse we can make. But notice God's approach to this lost son. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. Threw his arms around him. And kissed him. So. The son said to him in verse 21. Father I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. That's a picture of us returning to God after... You know, a period of time where we cut ourselves off from him. He never cut himself off from us, but because of sin, addiction, uh, just lack of interest, being sidetracked by whatever, we stray from God. Notice how quick he is to receive us back. How gently he receives us back. I don't think that this son was able to say a quarter of what he intended to say as far as an apology or or penance or whatever he could have done. The father just said, I welcome you back. You're my son. We're going to celebrate. That's the kind of God that we worship. And what a wonderful God he is. God offers his grace to us. He is so abundant with his grace. He never cuts himself off from us. Whenever there's a cutoff, it's our fault. It's on our shoulders. So God's grace is lavish, and he is so quick to forgive and to restore us back to a relationship with him. Now that grace is something that has been made available to the whole world through Jesus Christ's death on the cross. Now it is up to us when we hear the good news about what Jesus has done for us, we must decide to take advantage of His grace. In other words, God has done all that He can possibly do or all that He will do to provide for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus' death on the cross was the one sacrifice that covered every sin ever to be committed in the history of the human race, okay? God's work has been done. Now, it is our responsibility once we hear that news And that's why the gospel is called good news, because it is news of grace and forgiveness and restoration of relationship between us and God. We need to take advantage of that. We need to accept that. Just because Jesus died on the cross, if you never personally accept that gift of grace, then your sins really aren't forgiven. In other words, Jesus has done the work necessary. Now it's on our shoulders. When I hear that gospel, I have to respond to it. I have to make a personal decision whether I want that sacrifice on the cross to apply to me and to forgive my sins. And that's why we have to make that commitment to Jesus. First of all, in order to do that, you gotta see yourself as a sinner. And I told you the problem is in our society, what a lot of people do is they compare themselves to people who are worse than they are. And to say, am I a sinner? No, I'm not. I'm not as bad as they are. And they look down their nose in in judgment to other people. Well, that's not going to do you any good in your relationship to God. What you have to do is see yourselves as a sinner, that you have come short of the glory of God. The scripture says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Everybody. Another scripture says, there is none righteous, no, not one. And you have to see yourself included in that group because it's reality. But some people have such pride that they would never admit that they're a sinner or that they need a savior. And you know what? There's no hope for those people. You've gotta come to the point where you realize that you're a sinner and that you need a savior. God has made forgiveness available through Jesus' death But we must accept it. And it doesn't apply to us until we realize we desperately need it and accept it. We must believe that Jesus is the son of God and that his blood has the power to forgive our sins. That's what faith is all about. We read the Bible. We read the story about Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection. First of all, you got to believe it. You can't say, well, that's a nice fairy tale as some do, and they reject it. You gotta believe that it's reality, believe that it can apply to you, and you've gotta make a decision to accept it. And you know what, it takes humility to admit that you're a sinner. And I guess some people have trouble with that too. Too much pride. They can't lower themselves to the point where they will admit that they're a sinner and that they need to be saved. And that's what our existence on this planet is all about. <laughs> you hear the gospel, you've got to respond to it. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 22. Another parable that Jesus teaches here <clears throat> is along these same lines. And I, can, I think it kind of explains the situation in the world where some people have responded to the gospel and some haven't. Matthew 22, beginning in verse 1, Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. So, of course, here we're talking about God the Father preparing a wedding banquet for his son, Jesus Christ. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Now, this applies primarily to the Jews, because the Savior, Jesus Christ, was a Jew. He went to his own people, but they rejected him. Okay. I hear somebody's audio of the Bible going on back there. <laughs> So verse 4, then he sent some more servants and said, tell those who have been invited that I prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. So this is a condemnation toward the Jews who first heard the gospel, first dealt face-to-face with Jesus Christ, and they rejected it totally. And Jesus Christ, of course, the Son of God, is killed. Not only the prophets of Old Testament times, but even into New Testament times. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned down their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. Go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So now the calling is not just to the Jews, but now it's to everybody. The Gentiles are welcome to come in too. So the servants went out and into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Now, historically, when you went to a wedding, you would wear white. That was the customary color to wear. That's what was re- referred to as wedding clothes. Now, in our case, white in the book of Revelation, it talks about what the saints will be dressed in in the kingdom. Dressed in white because white symbolizes Forgiveness of sin. Freedom from sin. And uh, so this wedding host sees a person there who's not wearing white. In other words, whose sins have not been forgiven. Who has not recognized Jesus Christ as their Savior. Who has not received Jesus Christ as Savior. Friend, verse 12, he asked... How did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. In other words, the gospel goes out to many. But how many are gonna respond to it? By comparison, a few. So we have a responsibility, once we hear the gospel, to respond to it, to accept it, to accept the invitation that God has given us to come to the wedding banquet which will take place. It is talked about in the book of Revelation, Jesus Christ being the groom and the church being the bride. So the call goes out, the invitation goes out, that's the gospel. When you hear it, some people reject it. Some people say, no, that's not for me. I'm not interested. It originally went out to the Jews, but then the invitation was opened up to everybody, including the Gentiles, and that's how we got in. But we responded to the invitation. We came and we had the proper clothing, the white clothing, which symbolized forgiveness that only came through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. There's no other way you can get in there. So I think that this parable teaches us the lesson, that the invitation, the gospel goes out to all, many are invited, but few are chosen. That doesn't mean that few are good enough to get in, because none of us are good enough to get in. Few, by comparison, receive the invitation, make sure that they have the proper clothing on, reflecting their forgiveness of sin through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and participate. So it's not enough to hear the gospel. We need to respond to it. We need to commit our lives to Jesus Christ as we accept him as Savior. There's nothing we can do to earn this salvation. There's nothing that they could do to earn the invitation to the wedding feast. It was free. It's based on grace. It's a free invitation. But we have to humble ourselves and admit to ourselves that we need help. We need to be saved. We need a savior and take advantage of this free gift. And it's mind-boggling to think that so many people offered this free gift of salvation and eternal life are going to reject it. Why? Well, I think one of the reasons, one of the main reasons is pride. They won't humble themselves and to recognize that they're sinners. They're always right. They never do anything wrong. And if they should do a little something wrong, it certainly isn't as bad as what other people do. So we need to accept forgiveness. We need to accept God's grace. And then once we accept this, we need to forgive others as God has forgiven us. That's the principle that we learned in Colossians. Forgive others as you have been forgiven and realize the tremendous amount of sins that God has forgiven us. We need to accept that. And you know what? We also need to come to the point where we forgive ourselves. We can't dwell on our own sins for the rest of our lives. Sure, we remember some of the stupid things that we've done, some of the hurtful things that we've done in our life to other people. But you know what? Once God forgives us, we need to come to the point in our lives where we realize it's okay. We can move on now. God has not saved us so that we can just dwell on the mistakes and the sins that we've committed in the past. There's a scripture that uh, Paul writes in Philippians. Let me turn there. Philippians 3, verse 13. Philippians 3 and verse 13. He says, brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. So we can't just live in the past and continually dwell on the mistakes and the sins that we made in the past. Once God forgives, we have to understand and believe that those sins are forgiven. And we have to forgive ourselves, too. Because God has first forgiven us. He says, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So instead of dwelling on your sinful past, God says, let the past be the past. Move forward. Keep your eyes on the goal. Keep your eyes on the finish line of our calling. This way we can be encouraged and not depressed and discouraged all the time. Because we all have things that we we regret from our past. But we have to understand that once we receive Jesus as our Savior, those sins are gone. He concludes in verse 15 by saying, All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained." So you know what? From time to time I look back on sins I've committed in the past. And yeah, I still remember a bunch of them. And I regret them. But I also have faith and confidence that they're totally forgiven by God. And God does not expect me to just dwell on my past and be depressed and discouraged all the time. He wants us to continually be looking forward And you know what, if I think sometimes that my sins were too great, that God can't forgive me, that's false pride, because that's all about you. And if you think something like that and believe something like that, that your sins are just so terrible that God can't forgive you, then you're almost putting yourself over God. And that's worshiping a false God yourself. So try to keep that balance in mind. Jesus set a wonderful example for us of being quick to forgive. When he ran into the apostles after his crucifixion and resurrection, they didn't have to explain. They didn't have to give excuses. They didn't have to get down on their knees and, you know, beg for forgiveness. Forgiveness was quick. That's the way God is. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our limitations. But he's filled with grace and ready to share it with us. So don't be afraid of approaching God, no matter what you've done. He'll always be there and he'll always accept you back. And what a wonderful God we have. And we can count on and depend on to be like that toward us. We all still slip up from time to time, but call upon his grace and he will welcome you back. Let's give thanks. Our heavenly father, thank you so much for being the God that you are. When we were younger, Perhaps we were taught wrong things about you, that you were some sort of a strict God who somehow enjoyed watching us suffer, and that if we ever tried to come back to you, you would be so demanding and it would be so difficult, but Father, we realize now that you're not like that, that you're a wonderful God, a grace-filled God, a forgiving God, and we count on that because we need you every day, and we need your son Jesus Christ and his sacrifice in our lives every day. But it's good to know that we never fall out of sorts with you. That you have restored us and we're restored to stay. So help us to have confidence in that, to believe it and trust it. And Father, once again, we want to thank you for being such a wonderful God. It's a pleasure being your children. And we look forward to being with you for all eternity. And we're looking forward to that wedding banquet that we've been invited to. So Father, it's a wonderful relationship that we have. We count on it every day and draw us closer to you every day of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.